You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 3. Today, we are discussing conferences, why you should go to them, how they're good for your career, where to spot them, and what to do once you get there. Today's panel consists of Chelsea Slotten, Kristen Bastis, and Kirsten Lopez. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten. I am a current PhD student at American University. I study bioarchaeology, gender theory, and Vikings. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking about academic conferences, who goes to them, how to make the most of them, and why they are so important. And joining me to t- today to talk about these are Kristen Bastis and Kirsten Lopez. Hello again. I'm Kirsten Lopez. I have I am a graduate student, master's student at Oregon State University, studying geoarchaeology and textiles, specifically the basketry of the Great Basin. And I have been working in CRM for a number of years before I went back to school. So. Hey, I'm Kristen Fastest, and I earned my master's degree in 2006. I've been in archaeology since 1992, mostly working in CRM, and then the last six and a half years or so working in state parks in Idaho and now in Missouri. Great. Thanks so much, guys. If we want to start out kind of talking about the different types of conferences. You know, you've got everything from pretty informal, you know, local student conferences, which are great places to to go and learn about conferences, all the way up to, you know, state, national, international conferences. Have you guys ever been to those types of conferences? What was your experience? What do you like? What are your thoughts, I guess? This is Kristen. I have not been to an international conference, but I've been to national conferences like the SAA and the AAA, as well as regional conferences, the Midwest, Northeast, Great Basin, and then some state-level conferences, Idaho. Hopefully, we'll be going to local conference in Missouri later this year. Great. So what do you like about conferences? Uh, what I like about conferences is that you get to meet people that are doing similar research to you, see their presentations and what they're doing, new methods, finding research lines from different areas, you know, seeing where you can kind of cross-pollinate and take your research in a new direction from some other discipline. Of course, the social aspect of hanging out with the new people that you meet and you know, getting to know them. Yeah, the networking opportunities at conferences are really, really spectacular. It's always nice to, to go, especially to some of the larger ones, or at least for me, when you get to meet people whose work you've maybe read or whose theory you've applied to your own work. I always find it really interesting to, to meet those people and talk to them, you know, ask them questions. It's really yeah, interesting. 
definitely be very exciting, especially at places like the SA, uh, where you have that sort of meeting of the minds and seeing stuff from disparate part of the countries or the continents is kind of unique. I don't like I, like Kristen. I haven't been to any of the international conferences, like the World Archaeological Conference or the European um, Archaeological Association. I think that's the right name for the European one. I can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. Yeah, the essays you kind of have from all over the world presenting and it's neat to kind of get an idea of what kind of research being done because I've also been to the local, rather regional, Northwest Archaeological Conference and the one here is very, we say very, but it tends to be CRM focused. The research done in the Northwest is done by CRM firms and so you get a lot of the research that's done in, in that sphere. And then also it's kind of a neat place for the academic and contract worlds to meet. And they do kind of check each other a little bit, which is kind of neat to watch, but it's also a really great place, especially for students or people working CRM or are trying to work in CRM to meet people in that world, in the business world, and to kind of network that way and let people know that you're still around. <laughs> Because a lot of the time, you know, firms may employ you for a job and then you move on to another firm and either if they don't hear from you, you know, they assume that you've either found a better job or you're not around anymore. It's kind of a fun way to network with uh, the business world that way as well. But the way that the research is focused in a regional area tends to be kind of specific to that area versus like other parts of the country might have other avenues or other opportunities for research that may not have in the Northwest. Like there isn't a lot of ceramics in the Northwest, <laughs> which is pretty well known. I don't see a lot of ceramic analysis or anything along those lines. So it's kind of neat to see what people are doing with that in other parts of the country. Sure, that's a really great point about some of the advantages of going to larger conferences and the advantages of smaller conferences in terms of access to, to the business world, as well as meeting with more local people. Just in case we have anyone who isn't from the Northwest or isn't is new to archaeology, can you just talk really quickly about the CRM, kind of what that acronym means and where you're coming from with that? Yeah, so CRM stands for Cultural Resource Management in the Northwest in and kind of all over the country, definitely, but specifically in the Western United States. It's a big employer employing hundreds uh, or thousands of archaeologists that do research for um, usually large projects, oftentimes energy projects that span several states. Sometimes it's smaller projects within a municipality, but generally it is public involved in that the benefit, the beneficiaries ultimately of said project are the public. So say you have a small town in Eastern Oregon that wants to put in a newer updated or they get a grant for an updated sewage system, archaeologists have to go in and make sure that they're not going to be blasting through any archaeological sites. And it also gives an opportunity for some of those regions that may not see much archaeological investigation to get some attention and some research done that may otherwise go undone. Sort of the gist of it, um, I believe it's about 80%. Someone said 90% recently, but I'll stick with the 80% of all employed archaeologists in the U.S. are in CRM rather than academic field. And a lot of that has to do with where the money is. Some of it has to do with just opportunity. 
is Kristen. Um, and also another major employer is the government, federal agencies and state agencies, particularly on the state level, departments of transportation get a lot of their funding from the Federal Highway Administration, which causes Section 106 to kick in, and then state parks and national parks, Bureau of Land Management, Forest Service, Army Corps of Engineers, and other federal agencies like that all employ various levels of archaeologists, field techs, all the way up to project managers. Thanks so much for that. Really excellent explanation of of CRM. Now, I'm not from the Northwest, and I have actually done most of my work in Europe. So I can't say that I am personally very familiar with the the CRM. Do they hold any of their own types of conferences? Or you you brought up an interesting point saying that a lot of archaeologists in the US are contract archaeologists or, you know, term or full-time archaeologists with CRM rather than, than academic archaeologists. And do you think there's a, a difference in what academics versus CRM employees might be looking for out of a conference? I would say, and Kristen, you can check me on this. You've been around it a little bit longer, I think, than I have. But with the academic, it's a lot research involvement and discussing sort of, like you were saying before, methods and research, kind of comparing, you know, say what someone else in the same fields might be doing, whereas a lot of CRM firms are doing that to a minor extent, but by and large, they're fulfilling their public outreach requirement in those conferences by sharing and disseminating the research that they have done with regards to what is required of them by their contracting employer. So say an agency or a usually or oftentimes the contractors, not the agency itself, but rather an energy company that needs to fulfill, for example, Section 106 or other laws that involve archaeological investigations. That is a big proponent or a big part of why so many CRM firms, at least in the Northwest, attend. But to some extent, it is sharing what research they've been able to do because the publishing of CRM research is called gray literature for a reason. It kind of gets lost in the basements or the libraries or various repositories. But without getting too far into the complicated matters of CRM versus academia in general, to be conference-specific, the networking tends to be, depending on what level you are at, either that fulfillment of the public uh, requirement or networking for jobs. You know, you have field techs that go to meet new employers or just catch up with old employers. You know, maybe the big project they were hoping to get onto this spring got canceled and they need to kind of touch base with everyone else. It's a really great place to be able to do that all in one. Yeah, the, uh, this is Kristen. I, uh, I would agree with that. Mostly CRM people go to conferences to present on kind of a major project that they had worked on that actually involved some data recovery and some analysis. Most CRM projects, you know, they walk over ground where they don't find any artifacts or they shovel test and don't find anything, or they find sites of a light lithic scatter, which don't bear reporting out at a conference on those rare occasions when there's a big mitigation. And then also part of the mitigation would be disseminating the research that they do 
or a new methodology that they're involved in. CRM companies, I think, have been at the forefront of using digital technology in the field. Or um, early adopters of that just for pure efficiency, you know, getting the data back to the office um, quicker via email rather than having everybody write everything down on paper and then bring it back with them at the end of the week or the 10-day. And then also CRM, people may go to conferences to meet with the government archaeologists that may contract them. Like you were talking about a big project that got canceled. They may touch base with the BLM archaeologists and say, hey, uh, when are you going to do that big energy project? Or go to forest service person and say, is that timber sale still on? Or is that burned area? Did that get surveyed or, you know, things like that. So definitely business contacts. And then also, you know, students going to look for jobs with CRM companies or with federal agencies as perhaps seasonal technicians. And I'm actually really glad that you, you both kind of brought up the importance of getting your work out there. I know from personal experience that publication is hard and it can take quite a while to to happen. So one of the things that I really love about conferences is that you can hear what is going on kind of in, in the rest of the world. I know there was a conference this year in Canada. There's an archaeologist named Patricia Sutherland who's been doing some work on looking at wear grooves in blade sharpening tools and whetstones and had found traces of brass and bronze and iron. And this is up in, in northern, northeastern Canada, kind of the Labrador area, and found out that these whetstones have traces of metals that we know the local Dorset population wasn't using which really supports the theory that uh, might have been a Viking settlement there or at least trade with Vikings who would have been just kind of across the water in Greenland. That information isn't, you know, accessible in, in a journal yet. And it's great to hear about that kind of thing so that going forward, because I do research on Vikings, I know about that site. And if I was just waiting for a publication, it could be six months, it could be a year, it could be a couple years. It's publication can be dicey. Yeah, and also conferences are a good place for people who are doing research to kind of try out their ideas to present them in progress. Like, you know, in the middle of their research, they can present a little bit of it and see what kind of response they get from people who attend their papers. Like, oh, I found that too, or oh, did you think of this? Or, you know, things like that that can help refine finished product well before the manuscript is even written to for submission for publication. Yeah, I like that point. I would definitely agree that it's, it's a huge thing to be able to take back a whole bunch of people that may be in your field, that may be watching what you're doing, or that may be sort of not entirely in your field directly, but are knowledgeable about one aspect of it. For example, I'm doing geochemical studies on fibers. Uh, specifically basketry pieces. I know a deal about both, but I'm not a 100% expert on either of them. And it's neat to be able to be like, okay, you're actually like serious geologist over here, you know, contributing to another paper on, you know, sedimentology or something. And some of your previous work has been in geochemical stuff. And you can correct maybe some of my assumptions or some of my thoughts on what I'm trying to present or what I'm trying to research. 
also various other things that may come up that you or your advisor may not have thought of can really come up, like you're saying, Kristen, in bouncing around new ideas long before you actually try and publish them and save yourself either embarrassment <laughs> or even just refining things to the point where you really feel good about like, you know, I think I've done a thorough job. You have less self-questioning with some of your articles or with your pieces of research that as archaeologists, we tend to be, you know, to te- we tend to wear many hats. And so we often, although there are definitely exceptions, we often don't have like a specialty that we've been working in for 30 years. You know, we tend to kind of bounce around a little bit. And there are those specialists out there, which is really great. But that's one of the things I think that makes archaeology somewhat unique in that we're constantly checking each other and sharing information, but not so deep into one trench of thought that we lose sight of the bigger picture. It's particularly true of CRM archaeologists because their projects are dictated by who their client is what the client wants them to do, and then what they find there. So one year they're presenting on, you know, some ceramics that they found, and the next year they're, you know, doing something about train lanterns in northern Minnesota. Also, a good thing about presenting at conferences and going to conferences is that you can also hear, particularly some of the older archaeologists, say, oh, well, I noticed that you cited so-and-so in your, in your paper. Have you read this other paper? Because nobody can keep track, even all the published yes. literature, much less all the gray literature. And it's really great to have people who, oh, I just read this thing for this project that might help you out with your research, fill in some gaps that you were talking about in your paper. That is always really helpful. Another very good reason to present your research, either as a paper or in the less threatening format of a poster. Yeah, that's that's a really great point that we can't all know everything or be experts on everything. And kind of with that, we do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Hey guys, welcome back. So we're going to move on a little bit from the general discussion of what conferences are good for and the different ways people use them to some of our more personal experiences from conferences and how we felt about them. Kirsten, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I have not personally uh, presented at an archaeological conference, so I have presented some archaeological findings at student conferences and that was like what you mentioned earlier it's just a smaller within the school or within a, a group of schools uh, presentation that's kind of fun because it's a sort of a lay public you get people who are really excited because everyone gets excited about archaeology right to have everyone coming by you don't have pressure of so much having to critique of your peers 
partners or those who sort of your higher ups as much that you do with the archaeological conferences. So that's kind of nice in getting the practice in. I did a international student conference or presentation session, which was a lot of fun. And that was a poster format where I stood there for three hours and talked about the research that I did. I did publish like a great literature piece with two of the museums that I was working at at the time. Everyone loved it. It was a really interesting piece in a place that most people hadn't heard of, and that was kind of fun. And then with regard to archaeological specific, I have done a lot of volunteer work for both the SAA and my regional conference. One of the things that's really cool about the experience with volunteering, which is different than presenting, of course, is getting to know the presenters. So earlier, you guys had mentioned the sort of meeting the people that you've read their stuff. You know, you've read their papers and you kind of maybe look up to them or, you know, they're the rock stars of your region. You get to meet them in a kind of a formal setting, but they get to know your name because they're you're sort of important in that block of time, which otherwise may not may not get the opportunity to, or you may kind of drown into the background of all of the other students. So that's kind of an opportunity if that comes up for anyone else. And lastly, on that volunteer note, one of the things that I've managed the sessions, or maybe not manage, but kind of assist the chair with things like the microphone volume and the lighting, making sure the projector's working right and everyone has their stuff uploaded and as the presentation looks like it's supposed to little things like that and keeping time is that even the most experienced people will have been doing this for 30, 40 years get crazy nervous. Granted, some don't, but some people just, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. And just to know that that's okay (laughs) is really big as like a grad student or someone kind of presenting for the first time that like these people that have been doing it forever, it's, it's nice to know that everyone still gets a little bit of stage fright or a little nervous when they're going to present in front of a room of your peers. (laughs) Yeah, and it can definitely be intimidating. Kirsten, do you want to go next? Yeah. So I started out going to conferences and volunteering at the SAAs, uh, mostly to reduce the cost of the conference. And uh, you kind of get to see the behind the scenes of how conferences run, or at least a little part of the conference depending on what you're volunteering for. I also was helping assist with the room and and uploading conference papers onto the PowerPoint computer so that everything would flow smoothly. I kind of graduated, if you will, to poster session. And then my kind of crowning achievement so far was to present my master's thesis work at the SAAs in Puerto Rico in 2006. And that was really great experience because people, professionals in the field were coming up to me afterward and asking for a copy of my paper and telling me that the research was sound and they liked some of my new ideas. And so that was really an amazing experience to have that. One thing that I did to prepare for the conference in San Juan was to, my university had a brown bag series and people would come at lunchtime Sometimes they have kind of happy hour ones where you go in the afternoon and the students will take turns presenting their research and you practice being timed and you practice being professional and actually delivering your paper as if you were at it. Then you get feedback from your peers on everything from don't do that with your hands, 
you said um too many times all the way to the more finer aspects of your research check this reference or did you think about it this way or some things like that so it's important to practice before you present especially if you're going to the essays or another large conference like that practice a few times beforehand in a friendly welcoming environment and get some feedback on your body language and your gestures and your the speed of your speaking um, it's also important most people need to slow down <laughs> when they're when they first start presenting also if you have to point at your slides during your powerpoint practice that uh, sometimes people can stand and front of the screen and block what they're pointing out while they're pointing at it. So it really bears fruit uh, to practice for all sorts of reasons before you go to one of the larger conferences. And then it makes you look much better, very professional, and starts to build your reputation as a speaker. Yeah, and that's part of why we go to conferences is to get our name out there. I've also done a, a couple conferences. The The first one I actually ever went to was the American Association of Physical Anthropology Conference a couple years ago, where I did a poster presentation on my, my master's research. And that was, because we've all stated nerve wracking, and kind of stood by my poster for, for a couple hours and talked to different people who came by. But it was, I mean, it was a good experience. I'm definitely really glad I did it. Met a lot of, of different people. I think I also like the poster format because it is more casual and you can get more into the nuances of your project with people who come by if they're interested rather than if you're giving a paper, you have 10, 20 minutes, whatever it is to talk, maybe a couple minutes for, for questions and then you're done. So I like that the opportunities for kind of in-depth engagement are, I guess, more readily available with, with poster sessions. And it also does seem slightly less, less nerve-wracking getting up and giving a paper. conversation with people who are interested versus maybe answering questions at the end is very quick. And you know, you know, you, it, there's a pressure to brief and to get the answer right. It's maybe, I know I know this, or... I think I know this, but I can't remember it right now for whatever reason. Oh, dear God. <laughs> it's a, another thing that I've seen. And Kristen mentioned the pointing at the PowerPoint. Often I've seen, especially if it's on a very large pull-down screen, you'll have the, the laser pointer, which most people don't think about. But when you're nervous <laughs> and if you're using the laser pointer and you don't if you know that you shake, people will often use something else or just be like in this general area. But if you're trying to point at something very specific and you're shaking, you can't point very accurately. And I've seen a couple of people who may not have noticed it before um, or just didn't realize it get frustrated with themselves because they can't point at the exact bullet point or point on the map that they're trying to do. And then that distracts from what their next part is or their next line or what they were going to talk about. You know, I've, like I said, I haven't done those big presentations, so I don't like critiquing people, but just it's good, at least for me in preparation, I think, to be able to be like, oh, okay, I know I have a tendency to do stuff like that. I'm going to keep a mental note to, to practice that one. Sure. And I think the ability to stay calm when you're presenting, because 
things don't always go as planned. I actually was a logistical organizer for just a one-day symposium, so not even a big conference. But earlier this year, sometimes there are tech problems. You know, there was one presentation where the projector stopped working halfway through. (laughs) That kind of thing is going to happen. It's better to prepare for that than to not even think it can happen and then get really, really flustered. Not know where to go from there. Like, exactly. That you're making and, well, can I do this without a visual in case something goes wrong? Because, like you said, technology <laughs> is technology. <laughs> it goes wrong <laughs> by nature. I think it, it can be, especially nowadays, it seems like it's really easy to lose sight of that. could not be there in that exact moment when you need it, and there's not really a whole lot you can do to go around it other than plan for not having it. The other thing, too, is to help out with your conferences. See the behind the scenes. I was on the committee for the 2014 Great Basin Conference in Boise, and I was in charge of registration. We had almost 600 people register for the conference. We had well over 100 presenters. And I was the one emailing the presenters and telling them they needed to register and they needed to book a hotel room and sending out reminders. And I think being a conference organizer makes you a much better conference attender because I will not wait to the last minute (laughs) to register if I can help it at all, especially if I'm presenting. And I know for sure that I'm going to go register early fill out all your forms and tell them if you're going to the banquet or not and, you know, things like that. And you can also get to meet some of, you know, some key people in your field because they're going to be running the other committees. And so having a personal relationship with them on a committee also, you know, can help you in your job prospects too. Oh, for sure. And if you you do participate in planning an organization of conferences, it definitely gives you a lot more respect almost for how difficult they are to to pull off. And things do happen when you are running a conference. Maybe somebody's registration gets lost or their badge is at the wrong table for, you know, where they're last name is if you're picking up badges alphabetically be patient because it can get pretty crazy i definitely agree that working on a conference is is really useful for the relationships that you build you know and and anytime you're moving anywhere in this field and really anywhere or any field if someone has a positive association with your name if you're looking for a job in the future that's never a bad thing and if you say you're going to volunteer Show up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a big thing. <laughs> if you don't, then you have your name in official letters saying, I cannot show up to my That's right. And there's a few names that stick out in my head. Not too many, but um, and I'll probably forget them <laughs> in the next couple of years. But, you know, things like that can linger. We've talked a lot about positives of conferences, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the potential negatives when we come back. Hosted by archaeologist Emily Long, Trial Tales is an archaeology podcast with stories told by archaeologists about the crazy world of archaeology. Emily weaves a tale of wonder and excitement with her intriguing questions and imaginative editing skills. Check out Trial Tales today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash trial tales. Now let's get back to the show. 
Hey guys, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. And we are discussing conferences. I think we're going to move on to some of the the negative aspects of conferences. And of course, I mean, conferences are great and we all love them. But one of the things that immediately jumps to mind when I think about conferences that's a little bit negative is that they can get, get pretty pricey. What do you guys think about that? Do you have other thoughts on negatives about conferences? I would second that expense thing. And, you know, you can be very creative and make those expenses go down, but in the end, I mean, I don't think I've attended a conference that cost me less than $400, not including the entrance fees. So that would probably brought it up to 600 or so at the time. So that's a thought to keep in mind, but they generally tend to run far more expensive than that. Yeah, yeah, expense is an issue. Um, some of the things that are out there to reduce those are, of course, volunteering as a student. Another thing that you can do is reach out to the local university and see if someone can put you up in their dorm room. Maybe their roommate's gone for the weekend or something like that. Uh, another thing is to cram as many people into a hotel room as you can. I've definitely done that. Yeah, <laughs> we, we had, I think we did five people in a room for an essay. It's, you know, we got to roll out beds. Sometimes hotels don't charge for them, so that's something else to look into. Definitely go if they're local, and then, you know, the farther you have to travel, you might have to consider whether or not you should go, but conferences can be a very good investment in your career presenting at them for sure organizing and volunteering doing a poster um, and then just meeting people the other thing i would say that can be a negative about conferences is watch your alcohol intake yes you don't want to embarrass yourself (laughs) yeah i definitely don't want to be walking up to a person who you know you've read all their stuff that they've done and you're really interested in the next thing they're doing and you are a little too drunk to really talk to them effectively um that's not a good position to put yourself in so watch that stay hydrated drink lots of water and also do some planning you you can waste a lot of time at conferences by not knowing what you're gonna what you're gonna see and who you're gonna talk to make a plan for sure they you can get really scattered at conferences because there's all these cool things to see and all these people around and but treat it like like appointments um make an appointment for yourself to go to this particular paper or that particular paper and try to you know talk to any presenters or go to poster sessions or something like that and really really schedule your time also schedule some downtime for yourself particularly if you're more introverted. You definitely need some downtime to recover from all that socializing and the noise and the carrying on. Take care of yourself and, yeah, make make a plan and make a schedule. Yeah, you made some good points on that. Especially, so there's a couple things. One being taking care of yourself. Even if you're moderately introverted or mostly extroverted if you're staying in the room with say board and you're doing all the socializing and you're going to see all of these papers that's a lot of lots of people time (laughs) and it's exhausting and I, i tend to enjoy being around groups of people but there you know there are limits and after like a four day conference i'll be sleeping for a day just 
on the fact that just keeping up with people and talking, the fact that you're probably not sleeping much. If the you know you want to see a session at 8 a.m. or you have volunteer hours at 7:30 in the morning, and the conferences run until eight or nine, everyone goes out to get beer or dinner afterwards, and then you check back until 10 or 11. You know, there's not a lot of time for sleep pretty much every day of the conference. Yeah. Some that might run two days, in which case you only have one day of that in the smaller local conferences, but the SAAs is a whole four or five days. That can really mess with your system, and it can, I've seen a couple of people actually fall ill from overdoing it the first three days, and then they're in their hotel room for the next two, missing some important papers or not being able to do the poster because they were just so physically and emotionally exhausted from the socializing earlier on. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. And I also wanted to touch on the scheduling. You know, if you go to a conference that might have four conference rooms that you're kind of bouncing between and everyone's kind of chit-chatting in the middle, it's a bit more relaxed. Larger conferences such as the AA, uh, FAA, you have, and I'm assuming the AAA is probably similar to this, you know, thousands of people and 30 to 50 conference rooms that everyone's moving in between and being able to make it from paper A to paper B when there's a five minute gap in between, you're running three stories up. <laughs> so if you want to try and at least get a feel for how your schedule might flow and also know that you're going to run into that one person who came to meet on your way to this really important paper. Know what your priorities are. Be like, is it really more important for me to go to this paper or am I going to kick myself for not stopping to talk to this person that I've been hoping to meet or run into during this time? So think about those types of things. Most conferences do publish their schedule, papers and events prior, usually at least a couple days, if not a couple of weeks beforehand or more, and kind of just get a feel for what might be going on. And if you're not presenting or volunteering, one thing also is to take a look at that schedule and see if that's even something that you want to do. If you're, say, like a student or like a CRM, you know, shovel bum, like I was for a while, I still went to the SAAs because I was planning on going to grad school, and they happened to be somewhat convenient to my location. But they, right now, this time of year, coming up, or this year, the SAAs are in Orlando, which is the opposite end of the country for me. And it's not an easy trip to go. And I wouldn't if it weren't for the fact that there's an important symposia, which is not usually put on every year, that I think is important for my specialization or my research track to go and talk to the people and rub elbows with those in the similar brain of uh, research. So kind of toying with the... Is it important for me to go right now, or will I be wasting the money? I guess it's never too much of a waste of money, but, you know, could my money be spent elsewhere better or saved for next year for the next conference? And I also, if you're going someplace that's really far away or difficult to get to, conferences are important. But I've definitely been to conferences before, especially the, you know, multi-day ones that there might be an entire afternoon devoted to something you're just not interested in. You're not expecting to make any conferences or make any connections there. If it's someplace that has something special going on that weekend or that you don't think you're going to get back to soon or potentially ever, 
don't feel guilty, I guess, about maybe taking a couple hours out and seeing something local, you know, and if you know some people who are going who you haven't seen in a while, or if you meet people while you're there, maybe invite them to, to come along with you. It's a great way to both see the city that you're in and also interact with people, you know, kind of a less formal, less like professional academic surroundings, you know, and those those are good connections. To, to make for sure and they're gonna stand out as you're going to to talk to people and you know if you do end up staying with if you are a student and you end up staying with another student in their dorm and they're willing to let you stay for an extra day see some of the city either before or after the the conference take advantage of that and I would also really recommend either going and staying with or having people come stay with you. I've hosted for people for a couple conferences and I've always had, you know, a really great time, meet somebody new and interesting who might have a different research area than I do that we can talk about, you know, and then let's say three years from now, if I'm going to a conference in the city that they happen to be living in, even if it's no longer a student conference, I've now made this connection and can kind of call them and say, hey, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods any chance I can sleep on your couch, you know, so it's a, it's a great way to, to meet people and network and also, you know, have some fun with it, which I really enjoy. Yeah, I agree, Chelsea, those connections are like any relationship, personal or professional, or worth their weight in gold. I mean, as archaeologists, we aren't super sedentary, <laughs> we're kind of constantly either going to conferences or if you work in CRM as a technician, you're bouncing around your region or your, the country sometimes um, doing work here and there where you can. Um, oftentimes you're put up in hotels, sometimes you're not, as well as just, you know, moving for school. If you're going to do a professional degree or if you're going to do a master's or PhD, any of those might take you anywhere. And just knowing someone else in that city is is really key. I just want to make one other quick note about conference expenses that we haven't touched on. I know this is going back a, a couple minutes ago, but another thing to be aware of when you are looking for conferences and, and trying to figure out how to go to them without breaking the bank is a lot of conferences, particularly for students, although also sometimes for you know early career people, conferences might have grants for people who are presenting. So you should definitely maybe dig around a little bit online or email the contact person for, for that conference as a potential way of finding some funding. But beyond finding funding, how do you find conferences? I mean, they're kind of the big ones, the, you know, SEAs, the AAAs that most people in the field know about. But what about be some more regional or local conferences. Do you guys have any suggestions for that? Yeah, now, you know, now a lot of the conferences are, you know, they have a Facebook page or a website. So start with Google and see what's in your area. Also contacting your state, like the Idaho Archaeological Society or the Virginia Archaeological Society, you know, those local groups, just, you know, sending them an email. Um, and asking when their conferences, if it's not readily apparent on their web website. SHPO offices, uh, State Storm Preservation offices, uh, are a wealth of information, as are anthropology, archaeology departments and universities. And if you happen to work in an area, too, just ask around your fellow technician. I'm sure they've been to one or another regional, usually. Um, or your 
your crew chief, we usually has a suggestion because often what your experience is with this, Kristen, but generally most of the crew chiefs I've had tend to be very excited for younger techs or new techs and very, very encouraging with finding and furthering your career. You just have to ask around, ask people, talk to people. The regional that I go to, I found out about it about that way. And the national through the university, yeah, it sounds about right for who attends you. And like you're saying, just search around. There's outside of the regional and national leagues like the SAA, you also have like the Society for Historical Archaeology is another national group. There's the AAA, like you were saying, and there's other historical regional separate from the archaeological regional. There's historical can sometimes be rolled into architectural conferences depending on the region. So it's depending on what your specialty is. There's the Fiscal Anthropology Conference, which is separate as well. You know, poke around and see what other people who that are in your field or your interest group, where they attend and what thoughts they have as far as well, me going to the Historical Archaeological Society conference might be really interesting, but it may not be very relevant to my research. So, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses to each, of course. Yeah, those are all really great points. Well, it looks like we're getting pretty close to, to the end of our hour. Do either of you have any kind of last thoughts on the subject of conferences? You should definitely go. <laughs> Yes, and as far as the affordability, the, the money thing, you know, be creative. There's some really interesting places on the internet where you can find a place to crash on someone's couch for free or cheap. You can also use your network of people that you know and just kind of poke around. Like you're saying, hobble everyone in one room uh, or you know, find a place to crash. Those are big tools general funding or drive instead of fly, see what your options are as far as locality. But there's definitely ways of making it cheaper than you might pay traditionally staying in the hotel that is hosting the conference, most definitely. Yep. Another thing, too, is to remember if you are putting together some kind of grant proposal for research at the master's or PhD level to make sure you add in a line item to help you or take care of conference expenses for presenting the results of your research. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. I would also say, and I realize I'm somewhat spoiled in this, and that I live in a metropolitan area with a lot of universities around me. But if you are a student, even if you're not, if you even if you can't afford to go to some of the larger conferences, lots of universities have smaller local conferences that you know you can maybe drive 30 minutes or an hour on the weekend to to go to and still sleep in your own bed and you know. Even if it's not necessarily a conference that 100% fits with your, you know, interest, if there's a local history conference, you know, that context is really important and you never know who you're going to meet. So, so again, just go to conferences. They're, they're really useful and fun. So I think that's going to be our show. Thank you so much for joining us today and we'll see you next time. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. 
If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comment section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomtep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.